This is episode 14 of Untangled Faith. And so I'm in this sphere where I'm teaching about marriage, I'm writing about marriage. I don't fit, like I'm the ugly duckling. But this idea that you can't critique someone publicly is so unbiblical. When teaching is done in public, it has to be called out. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. done with season two of this podcast. So the first season is like Lorelai Gilmore would call her practice pancake, but I'm still sort of finding my legs and finding my way here. And I am thankful you've listened. I'm thankful for the reviews on Apple podcasts. I don't take it for granted. I want you to know that every time you reach out to me online, every comment, Every time you retweet when I share an episode or you talk about how this show has meant something to you, it is so encouraging to me and gives me that extra boost to keep going. I feel so lucky to be able to do this. What is this world that I get to sit here and talk about things and somebody's listening to it? What a world. Several months ago, I had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with Sheila Gregoire. She is a marriage blogger and speaker, and she is the author of the new book, The Great Sex Rescue. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to her was to hear what it was like to share a message that might cost her something in regard to her endorsements and relationships in the Christian marriage conference and writer community. And we'll wrap up our conversation at the end by talking a little bit about what her thoughts are about the state of the local church. Here's my conversation with Sheila Gregoire. So I would love to hear the birth story of your most recent book, how you came to write it and how you, you know, what kind of happened in your brain where you realized, oh my goodness, there's something wrong in this world that I've spent a lot of time in. Yeah. Just because something has the Christian label on it doesn't mean it's good. And I spent so long trying to fit. I started blogging in 2008 and I was in that mommy blog space and I had a lot of blogger friends and we would post on each other's blogs. And I found that a lot of them said stuff that I didn't actually agree agree with necessarily, but I didn't want to rock the boat because, you know, you're trying to build your platform. And and so you just kind of toe the party line and you figure, well, maybe I'm the weird one as opposed to them. They would write things about how if you have any marriage problems, you just need to pray. You need to remember that God calls you to submit. And I never found that that worked really well. I thought that actual solutions and drawing boundaries and things like that was far more effective and more biblical, but I didn't want to rock the boat very much. But nevertheless, I kept writing in this sphere. My husband and I were speaking at marriage conferences across Canada, and we'd be given curriculum that we kind of agreed with. You know, we talk about how much men need respect, and I would teach that, but I was always like, yeah, but you know, I need it too. <laughs> and, and so I'm in this sphere where I'm 
teaching about marriage. I'm writing about marriage, but I feel like everything that's being said, I don't fit. Like I'm the ugly duckling, but I kept writing and I got some big book contracts. I wrote the good girl's guide to great sex in 2012. My blog started transitioning more and more and more to sex because, and then my traffic grew because who knew people like talking about sex. And then it was two and a half years ago. It was January of 2019. I was procrastinating one day I had a migraine. I didn't want to work. I I was finding every excuse in the book not to work. And I was on Twitter and I saw people talking about this concept of how men need respect and women need love. And women were saying, well, actually, I need respect too. And I was thinking, yeah, so do I. And it occurred to me that in my closet upstairs, I had this mountain of Christian marriage books that I had never read. The marriage conference we speak at had had given us this huge box of all the best-selling marriage books, but I hadn't read them because I have this real fear of plagiarizing. So (laughs) I hadn't opened the box, but I got out love and respect being the sex person that I am. I didn't read the whole book. I just turned to the sex chapter, which is only about like 10 pages long. And I read this thing and that changed my life because I saw how badly it dealt with sex. And I realized oh my goodness, the problem is not me. It's not that I'm an ugly duckling that doesn't fit. It's that this stuff's really seriously toxic and we need to do something about it. You couldn't have realized what a big deal that moment at the end of 2019 would be for you. No, I really couldn't. And it was it was late in the week. I think it was like a Thursday or a Friday. I don't even remember what day it was, but I sat down and I wrote a 2,500 word post on how the book handled sex wrong because it opened up by saying, you know, that basically if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So men need sex and women don't. And a husband has a need for physical release. So it made sex entirely about his physical release. And she is to minister to him sexually as unto Jesus Christ. And why would you deprive him of something which takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? And when you do deprive him, he can come under satanic attack. And this is why so many affairs happen. And you need to understand his struggle with lust. And that's the entire message. I have that book. I had that book. I think I read the first chapter. I just didn't finish it. I never felt the need. I don't, it did not speak to me. I think we probably got it in like 2010. I don't know when it came out actually. 2004. Everybody was reading it. Everyone was talking about it. And I was like, well, I guess I should get the book. I don't think I realized until you started talking about it, how dangerous some of these things can be if we are not trauma informed, if we're not actually thinking about power issues and all those things that can come into even marriages that we assume from the outside are are just great. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful that you kind of turned that light bulb on and started that conversation. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Sheila and knew her story would interest you is because of her decision to speak up. She saw a message that was damaging to marriages and she knew that blowing the whistle on it could cost her a lot. Did you think when you started talking this might be a problem for my career. I really did. And I was very scared. So I had this post written and then I I kind of had this vision of what the next week on my blog was going to look like, what I wanted to tackle. That post went well. I had never really called out people by name before. I'm a very large blogger. Like my, I was getting about a million page views a month at this point. My, my marriage blog is is one of the biggest in the Christian space to love, honor, and vacuum.com. But I had never called anyone out by name. And I went into church that Sunday. I had the post all ready to go for Monday. I just didn't know what if I was going to put it up or not. Yeah. 
And I was praying and I said, God, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know if this is what I should do. And the pastor that day was preaching in Second Chronicles 20. And it's the story of when the Israelites are surrounded by enemies and they're not sure what to do. And they get together and they pray and they ask the Lord and does tomorrow go down to the battle for the battle is not yours, but mine. And it says it twice, tomorrow go down and fight. And I was sitting there and I was I had been praying, God, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? And it said, tomorrow go down and fight. And then when I got home, I read the rest of that story in Second Chronicles 20. And it's all about how when they went down, they found everybody dead because their two enemies who had allied against them had fought each other in the night and killed them, killed each other. And so they just took the plunder. And at that that was when I started praying, God, take the plunder from those who are destroying women and give the platforms to those who will lift up women and and heal couples and point them to you. And I said, it doesn't need to be me, God. I don't care who it is. Just take the platforms away from those who are spreading harmful messages. And that's been my prayer ever since. I wrote a week of posts about love and respect, but it's just about this idea of unconditional respect and how unbiblical that is. And over that week, hundreds of women sent me in stories of how they had been abused because of that book. And we were overwhelmed. We compiled those stories into a report. I have a statistician who works for me. She did a mixed methods analysis of those stories, ran stats on words that were used. We sent that report into focus on the family because it promotes love and respect and focus on the family did nothing. After a year of, of trying to get them to reply to me, they finally did when I threatened to go public. And they said that they believe love and respect is a biblically sound empowering message for wives. And so we figured, okay, well, they're going to ignore several hundred, but can they ignore thousands? And so we decided to do the largest survey that's ever been done of Christian women's marriage, marital and sexual satisfaction, and see what evangelical teachings wreck sex for women. We were able to actually see the effects of certain teachings on women's sexual satisfaction. And we can now pin down what the evangelical world is saying that hurts women. And then we looked at the best-selling books and we found where those messages are located and which books are the most harmful. And we're trying to point people to something which is healthy instead. Did you think that there could maybe start a dialogue with some of these people that are writing books in the Christian marriage space? Did you did you expect that any of them would speak to you or respond to you? I mean, I don't want to call anybody out, but I just, did you have hope or did you kind of know, I don't think they're going to receive this well? I kind of knew they wouldn't just because when we started calling out love and respect, the only reply, like I said, focus on the family ignored us and Emerson Eggers threatened to sue. And he kept writing blog posts, which were obviously about what I was saying without naming Mm -hmm. me or linking to me. It was like he was mirroring what I was saying. And the problem is all of these people are close friends. What was really hurtful to me is that I did have some big name authors that I won't name that I have been friendly with and whose books actually were quite healthy that on our, uh, we created a a rubric of healthy sexuality teaching, a 12 point rubric. And some people whose books scored healthy and some others that, that I know whose books we didn't look at, they've always liked me. They've always promoted my stuff. They've always liked what I said, but they couldn't touch this because they didn't agree with calling out people publicly. And I find that very destructive in the Christian world. There's this idea that you're not allowed to call someone out. You have to go to them individually. But this idea that you can't critique someone publicly is so unbiblical. Yeah. Because when teaching is done in public, it has to be called out. It has to be corrected in public. That's what Paul did over and over again in his letters. Yeah. Because of the huge platform that people have and how far that message has gone when somebody is 
a public figure, but at a certain point, there needs to be some sort of public acknowledgement. If you are learning that it's not just something you disagree with, but something that is harmful to people. This next part of our conversation is so critical. Sheila mentions the Matthew 18 argument. The Matthew 18 argument is often used as a way to silence people who raise concerns publicly. Sheila explains her thoughts on what it means for a public figure with public teaching. People will say, well, you should use Matthew 18. Well, let's let's talk about Matthew 18 for a minute. So Matthew 18 is when there's a dispute between believers. So when someone has hurt someone else, you go to them individually. If they don't listen, you bring two to three witnesses. And if they don't listen, you bring it toward the church. I am not the injured party. So I don't have a responsibility to go to them individually because they didn't hurt me. Yeah. What I have found is that they hurt other people. And those other people have gone to them. Emerson Egrich had people who told him that their husbands got so much more angry and, and had so much more rage after reading his book. Every Man's Battle um, had stories of women saying, if I had known about men, what you're saying about men, I never would have gotten married. All of these authors confess in their very books that women have told them how traumatic their messages are. They've already had women come to them. They've had more than two to three witnesses come to them. So now we're actually at stage three of Matthew 18, which is bring it before the church. And that's what I'm doing. I had to take this opportunity to ask Sheila if she considered herself to be a part of the evangelical industrial complex. That's the term for the way many people refer to the evangelical publishing and speaking community and how they all benefit from each other financially and relationally. As part of it, do you feel like you were a part of it? And um, I guess to explain that, I mean, the evangelical industrial complex, we think it was Sky Jatani who first used that term. Really, there is an economic system Mm -hmm. involved in a lot of the public Christian space that is involved in publishing, speaking. They all sort of benefit from each other. Um, media. Mm-hmm. He kind of referred to that as this s- system yeah. that sort of wants to sustain itself. So would you have seen yourself as a part of the evangelical industrial complex? If I was, I was always a minor part because <laughs> I never, I'm, first of all, I'm Canadian. So I'm outside of the US. Yes, that's right. That was one of the reasons I had a hard time breaking in because um, for publishers to publish your books, you need to have a platform in the US. And I wasn't doing a lot of speaking in the US because I wasn't well known in the US. And at the time where I was trying to get trying to break in, I had kids. I remember sitting with the publisher back in 2010 when I was trying to get someone to take a risk to publish The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, which I knew was going to be a good book because I didn't have a platform. I had a, I had a blog, which was doing okay. It wasn't doing great, but I didn't have a big platform. And she said, well, we have another speaker who homeschools and she speaks 40 weekends a year. Do you think you could speak 40 weekends a year? And I said, no. And at the time I was probably speaking about 12 and that was heavy. You know, I'm like, no, because I'm raising my kids. And I was honest, I still got the good girl's guide. The publisher did pick it up and Zondervan picked up. It's done very well. And there's a companion book coming out next year, the good guy's guide to great sex, as well as a revised version for the 10th anniversary. So that's exciting. And Zondervan's been very good to me, but there was that idea, if you're going to make it big, you need to be at all these conferences. And I'd never have been invited to big conferences. And so what happens is you get to these big conferences and then you meet these people, they endorse your books, you endorse their books, and you all invite each other to speak at everyone's conference. And so you don't ever want to tick anybody off because it's a small world and you want everyone to like you. And my issue is, but what a lot of these people are saying is, is actually harmful. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's harmful, like you said, and and we can't just be nice about that. We need to call it out. And so I don't know that I was part of it exactly because I haven't been at the conferences and because I haven't been well known. I've kind of slipped under the radar. I think most big name people that are that are picking on Amy Bird and picking on Beth Allison Barr and everything, they don't realize how influential I am because I'm not at these conferences. But like I said, my blog was getting like a million page views a month. I have a very large social media presence, but I think a lot of these big guys who beat up on women and on Twitter don't realize I exist yet. So that's kind of cool. But I mean, you have a really strong personality. I don't mm-hmm. see anybody telling you what to do or what not to do. <laughs> yeah. I I think I've always said I do have a lot of freedom because I don't need a gatekeeper because I don't need to get invited to conferences for people to hear about me because I have such a large online presence. I don't need that gatekeeper. And that allowed me to say what I wanted to say without worrying so much that people would diss me because focus on the family can diss me all they want, but I still have a very large newsletter list. That that really helped me was not, not needing that gatekeeper and being able to speak to people directly. And it made me a little bit more brave. If everybody was mad at me, which I knew they were going to be after the book came out, it was okay because I could still speak to women. And the book's been selling really well. I've had a lot of pastors and counselors read it and say, I've never had a Christian sex book I could recommend. And now this is it. So that's been really encouraging. Sheila did end up losing some endorsements, but the ones that agreed to endorse her book are names I respect. Rachel Denhollander and Kristen Cobez Dumay are two of those names. I feel so good about the list of names of endorsements on the back of your book. I look at those and I say, these are strong women love Jesus, especially in regard to Rachel. She's trauma informed. She's not going to endorse a book that's going to hurt somebody. And she's not going to endorse something that she feels like is Mm -hmm. contrary to God's word. One of the first interviews I heard of you in the I would say this year, or maybe it was around the time you were getting ready to launch this book was with Julie Royce. If you've heard her story, you know, she had a book that came out right around the time where God was calling her to speak truth that was going to very much take away her ability to be promoted in that evangelical industrial complex. And when it came to making that decision, am am I going to speak out of what I'm seeing? And at the time it was Moody Bible. Mm -hmm. You have a similar story where you had decided, you know what, this may cost me something, but I need to say it. I'm curious, what kind of cost have you faced? I don't know that it cost me a lot in the sense that I never had a lot of it to begin with. We're recording it for those listening right around the SBC convention that just happened. I was very surprised by the outcome where the reformer was voted in as president and where they actually, the messengers voted to hold the executive committee accountable for and and doing an investigate a thorough investigation into sexual abuse enabling and cover up. I was not expecting it to go that way. I think that there's this assumption that the powers that be still have power. And the truth is they don't. If you look at the books that have come out this year in the in the Christian evangelical space, yeah. It's mostly been written by women or people of color and they've been selling astronomically well. Um, If you go on Amazon and you look for Great Sex Rescue, my book, you'll see it recommended that they often do, often bought together with Jesus and John Wayne and making a biblical womanhood, or maybe Amy Bird's book, you know, and these books have done really well because the powers that be are no longer determining the conversation, but I don't think they've realized it yet. With all the things that have happened politically in the world and pandemic, things are really changing and shifting and where conversations are happening 
happening. And I don't see as much of a centralized power holding as we used to see. I asked Scott McKnight, you know, what was giving him hope. He mentioned you and Beth Allison Barr and Kristen Dumay. He said, these women, super smart women that love Jesus are putting out great works, inspiring dialogue that is so helpful for the church. And I think there's another aspect to it as well, which is, I think that the church has suffered from this assumption that because someone is a pastor, they are therefore equipped to teach. Mm. on anything. yeah. Because one of the things I did was I looked at every single footnote in the 13 best-selling sex and marriage books that we saw. Yeah. Of all of the books, there were 11 academic journal articles cited. And that was not per book. That was over the 13. So, and, and I'll give you an example. Emerson Egrich in Love and Respect says that the reason that people are divorcing left, right, and center today is because you can't have two equals at the head of a marriage. You need a husband to make the final decision. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> what we found is that when husbands make the final decision, even if they consult with their wives first, divorce rates increase 7.4 times. Wow. And that is in line with what John Gottman has also found out of the Gottman Marriage Institute. So Emerson Egrich made that statement with no proof. And in fact, the opposite is true. Marriages function much better when people decide things together and when there's collaborative decision-making. But he didn't even put a citation for what he said. He was just able to state that. Here's another example from him. He says that 85% of men stonewall. Okay. And what that means, stonewalling is when um, communication breaks down, you refuse to engage in a conflict because yeah. your, your emotions are too high. You just, you just stop communication. And he cites the Gottman Institute for this. And he is, he put this in his book. He's put it in blog posts. He had it in the sermon series that I have online from, from last year. The actual statistic is that 85% of stonewallers are male. <laughs> That's not the same thing. It's like saying 85% of murderers are male. That doesn't mean 85% of men are murderers. Those yeah. are very different things. And yeah. yet he didn't even understand, like, yeah. that's a pretty big error to make. And nobody has ever called him on it. Yeah. Like, I don't understand that. And so what I'm asking the church to do is to have more discernment and use actual research. Here's another question I really wanted to hear a response from Sheila on. She had mentioned that they are having their study that she did for her book, The Great Sex Rescue, that they are having it peer reviewed. I really wanted to hear a response from Sheila on what she would do if the peer review found that her study was flawed. What happens if you hear back from the peer review people and they say, Sheila, we have a few questions and concerns with how you put together this study. Then we would uh, answer those those questions. We've already had ethics approval, so that's all good. But the thing is, we're working with um, Andrew Whitehead out of, it used to be Purdue University. It just changed its name. I think it's like Indiana or something yeah, now. Yeah. But he he has set up the I'm going to get the acronym wrong. It's called the ARDA, but it's like the Archive of Religious Data of America or something. Like It's where all the data sets get put for any surveys on religion. And so th they're going to be adding ours to that. He, he does this all the time. He's very comfortable with the way that we did our research. You know, Joanna Sawatsky, who is, who's our epidemiologist and who is responsible for all the stats, really knows thing. We created a survey that was, th that was done to high standards. So I'm really that's excited great. about that. But let me give you an example of, of the bad stuff that's been done before. Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect, and Shanti Feldon's book for women only were written around the same time and were published around the same time. Shanti Feldon surveyed a thousand men. Okay. She had a survey firm locate a thousand men for her. And of those thousand, like only about 480 or so answered this particular question that were married. And she asked, um, would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? 
Now that question is problematic to begin with because you should never, it's a double-barreled question because there's two options. Like for each answer, there's two options. So alone and unloved and adequate disrespected. So if they choose one, you don't know if they're responding to alone or unloved, right? Or inadequate or disrespected. So it's a problematic question to begin with. Her pilot study said that they didn't know what the question meant. Her survey designer said it wasn't a good question and it was invalid, but she used it anyway. 72% of men chose they would rather be alone and unloved. So they used, she used this to say, see, men prefer respect. And that survey question is what Emerson Egrich based his entire book on. Oh, wow. Okay. He actually footnotes it. It's quite a long footnote in Love and Respect. The problem is they never asked women. And when people have asked women the same question, women choose respect in the same, roughly the same numbers. They they created this whole idea that men need respect and women need love without asking women and based on a faulty survey question. Yikes. And that book has now sold like what, 4 million copies? And it's not based on anything. And yeah. so I'm just saying, hey, can we raise the bar on what counts as research. I have to say that I'm still completely flabbergasted that the premise of a popular marriage book was based on a faulty study and no one seemed to notice for so long. I am really grateful for your book because I think it's a gift to men and to women that you actually have the data to back it up that I feel like I could recommend it to women coming out of really abusive experiences and it would not feel shameful or dangerous to her. You know, one of the things we actually found is that some of the evangelical teachings about sex actually are traumatic. Like they, our bodies interpret them as trauma. And the most traumatic one is what you were just talking about. Um, this is this was the most traumatic message that we measured is that women are obligated to have sex when their husbands want it. 43% of women reported being taught that. Um, 39% believed it before they were married. And when you believed it, your chance of experiencing primary sexual pain or vaginismus, which is a sexual pain disorder where the walls of the vaginal muscles, they contract making Um, penetration painful, if not possible. Your chance of having sexual pain, if you believe the obligation sex message, increases to almost the same statistical effect as prior abuse. And you think about that, if you're abused, basically the abuser is saying your needs don't matter. I get to use you however I want. Yeah, And that is the same message that the evangelical church is giving. It's highly traumatic. You have had a crazy couple of years. You know, maybe God would have brought you on this journey anyways. And I kind of see some natural progression in you as you tell your story. So tell me about that. I listened to your podcast from the end of last year where you talk about being church homeless with your daughter. Tell me about where you found yourself and kind of how you, you know, what happened in that season for you of feeling like I don't fit here. Mm-hmm. I, we don't have a church home. Yeah. And we were at two different, very evangelical churches, both for about nine years. The first one I was really involved in when the girls were small, like I gave my all to it. And I, I ran one of the praise teams. My husband was on the deacon's board. And at one point shortly after I took over that praise team, the deacon's board started debating. I was allowed to pray from the pulpit. And one particular Sunday morning between songs, I had said, as we sing this next song, take the concerns of the week and 
in your mind to put them at the foot of the cross and leave them there and just look up at the Savior. And the debate was, was I preaching? Oh, wow. My husband was on the deacon's board. They debated for a year whether I was allowed to do that. And they said that after each service, they would debrief with me whether I stepped over the line. And I stayed and took it. And then a couple of years later, a bunch of stuff happened. We ended up leaving that one and went into another one where I focused mostly on the teen programs because that's where my girls were in. And I really enjoyed that. But then when they grew up, grew out of that, I just found again that there were certain things that with the way that they treated women that I couldn't handle. There was a sermon where the pastor preached that a woman must obey her husband and everything. That's what it says. And everything means everything. And to this day, I am so ashamed that I did not stand up and walk right out. I should have known better. But we went to another church, which was a lot more affirming of women, but it was very large. I didn't get to know anyone And I didn't want to drive half an hour to listen to a 25-minute sermon and then listen to really well-produced music. Mm. That's not what I need. And I feel like the church services today are based on people's needs from 500 years ago, not from today. Like 500 years ago, people didn't have Bibles. People were illiterate. People needed teaching. I mean, today we can get teaching online. I listen to sermons every day online. I'm always reading big articles about different doctrinal points. I don't need teaching. What I need is community. We found a bunch of small neighborhood churches that we're thinking of going to when I'm in Ontario. We still can't go to church here. We haven't been able to very much for the last, the whole thing. So we've been watching different ones online and we've been thinking about, I don't know where we'll end up, but I also know so many of my friends who currently are not going to church, but who still believe. And so we're actually really looking at doing more of a home church model as well, because I'd like to keep a lot of them plugged in. I think we all just need to have safe spaces where we can talk about faith and talk about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, as opposed to what it looks like to believe certain things and to make that distinction between Christianity as a set of beliefs and Christianity as a way of life. Oh, yeah. And we need to get back to Christianity as a way of life. You think about how many times Paul writes about walking, you know, as you walk in the spirit, as you as you walk and how Jesus talks about himself as the way. And we've we've distilled everything into what you believe. And I, and I think that we're missing out on Jesus. Yeah. And I'm seeing a and huge so, discipleship gap for people where mm-hmm. we aren't, we're talking about things, but we're not actually looking like Jesus, especially in in the south in the US oh man this covid mm-hmm. season and politics has been yeah. really brutal and it just seems like man we should have been having conversations a long time ago about what it looks like to be a christian and live that out yeah. in times where people disagree on things what does it look like to actually reflect jesus it has been really really painful and i don't know mm-hmm. what it will look like when everything's opened up again and people have the freedom to go back to church buildings everywhere around the world will they go back and will they go back to the same places there's a big percentage of people that took this as a chance to make a change and i'm also seeing yeah. a good number of people that are like you know i kind of done with this contemporary church thing and i want something more liturgical not that I mean, every church has a liturgy, but they want something more traditionally liturgical. I'm seeing that. And we're actually going to use a liturgy in our home church. I'm so big on liturgy. I'm seeing people more drawn to a church that is not all about uh, production on a Sunday morning. That's just much simpler. One of the things that has bothered me, because often I go to church as a time where I'm struggling. This has been a difficult, really difficult couple of years for us, just realizing how deep the rot goes. And I go into church and I don't always feel great. 
And then you're supposed to get all emotional during the worship. And I think what I like about liturgy is that you're just simply declaring truth and you're declaring it together as a community, whether or not you feel it right now. And I think there's something really powerful about declaring truth into existence and into, you're, de- you're declaring what is true and then you're you're declaring it into existence in the future because you're partnering with it right now, even if you're not feeling it. It's still that corporate this is who we are. I don't want to feel guilty going into church about not being able to be emotional. But even when I'm not, even when I'm down or I'm discouraged, I can still declare truth. And that's what a lot of the Psalms, if you read them when David is lamenting, but then at the end he says, you know, but I will still praise you, Mm. right? That's not him getting emotionally excited. That's just him declaring, no matter what, I will praise you. And I think that's what liturgy gives us. That permission to say, God, where are you? And God smite them down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in addition to the praise, traditional praise, there's imprecatory psalm, smite them down, (laughs) smite down my enemies. Yeah, And it's like permission to be really, really raw and really honest. Yeah. There's something beautiful. And you don't, when you don't have the words to be able to read something that is just simple truth is very powerful. I guess I was going to ask you, how would you find, how would you identify a safe and healthy church? If you're not planning on going back into a church building, maybe I don't ask that. I think we'll always be affiliated with somewhere. I almost see the home church as a way to make sure that that a lot of the people that I love and care about, a lot of the teens that I mentored who are now in their twenties and married and aren't connected anywhere, that, that we stay connected as a community. And then maybe we plug into the whatever church that yeah. I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I don't want to go completely on my own, but I also know there's a lot of people that aren't going to go into a church building, but they would love to talk about a sermon that they yeah. hear online. They yeah. would love to just be part of that community. And so I don't know what it's going to look like. I really think this model of going to church to listen to a sermon and then to listen to a well-produced music thing when what people really need is to feel connected and talk is not the way to do it. Yeah. It would be my dream to just have like small groups of people that could just interact with scripture together. That would be amazing. It's funny. I think the churches that are going to get back really well after COVID are the small ones that were already community-based. Like there's a couple of churches where where most of the people who went were like over 60, but they did a lot in the community and they did a lot for each other and they are itching to go back. Everybody is itching to go back because it's not about the sermons, it's about the people. Whereas I think the church just weren't connected. Nobody really has missed it. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one final question. And I was just wondering what you would say to somebody who is navigating, finding their place and their voice in a Christian community where they don't feel as comfortable as they once did. What advice would you have for them? Don't stay too long. I stayed too long many times because I felt like we hear so often in evangelical spaces that outside of our little group, they don't really know Jesus, or they're not real believers. Or if you're looking at everybody around you, and they don't look anything like Jesus, even if they can quote scripture, you staying there is not going to change that unless you feel really called to. Some of us might be called as missionaries to our own churches, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if your soul is dying, and if you're so thirsty, (laughs) I I think 
realizing that you can't change a corrupt system is really important and finding somewhere else. Because I really think the majority of people right now who know Jesus are not necessarily in these big churches anymore. A lot of them have left or a lot of them aren't going at all. And if if all of us could just get together in some way (laughs) and find alternate expressions, I think Twitter is, it sounds weird, but Twitter has been so life-giving to me because you follow the right people and you realize I'm not alone. And I would just say, don't be afraid to try outside your denomination. It can feel like you're saying goodbye to everything that you ever knew. But if you're if you're finding that every Sunday morning you get depressed and you're emotionally exhausted and you have to, that's not healthy. And that doesn't mean that you don't love God. It, Jesus yeah. said that you will know them by their fruits, that a bad tree can't bear good fruit and a good tree can't bear bad fruit. If your church is bearing a lot of bad fruit, then your church isn't a good place. It may be that yeah. your time is done there. I wish more yes. churches, I, I heard somebody say this, just wish that churches would bless people when their when their season was done there and say, we yeah. are so thankful for the time you've been here. We understand that you're going to go somewhere else now because, you know, different yeah. things have changed or you, God's leading you or working or impressing different things on you that it's okay. You know, it yeah. was, it served you during a time and there were some good things that happened, but also to acknowledge that there were some bad things too. And um, sometimes we leave yeah. places that still can be redeemed, but God doesn't want us there. Yep. And I do have a lot of good memories of the churches that we did leave, but I left too late. It would have been in both cases, it would have been better if I'd left about two to three years earlier. That's a good word. The yeah. art of a good goodbye is is a learned thing. And I think you're right. Don't stay too long. Thank you, Sheila. I have loved chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sheila Gregoire. You can find more content from her on her website, which is to love, honor, and vacuum.com. We have one more episode this season, and usually around this time of the episode, I give you a little preview about what's coming next. However, this time I don't have a preview because I'm going to need your help for this. To wrap up this season, I'm going to do an ask me anything. And I can't do an ask me anything if you don't ask me anything. So this is real simple. I'm going to open up. I'm going to have a post on Instagram that you can respond to with questions that you would like to have me answer on the podcast. I'll also have a Twitter post that I'll share as well that you can respond to. You can direct message me on Instagram or on Twitter if you would rather be private. I won't share your name if you'd rather I don't share your name. Be sure to just clarify whether you want your name attached to it and I would follow your lead on that. So you can ask me about me. You can ask me about the podcast. Um, I'm pretty open. If it's something I don't want to answer, I just won't answer it. Thank you for helping me make the next and final episode of this season amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you would share it with a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith. And for transcripts and show notes, check out untangledfaithpodcast.com. See you next week.